Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Once again, we convene for a more perfect union. And with us today, as always, Representative Jeff Roy from the Hill. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning, Pete. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Chris. Great to be back with all of you again today. And of course, along with Jeff, we have Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, a higher education consultant uh, and wizened expert on all things. And with that, we have a new stalwart joining us this morning, uh, Chris Wolf. Chris, good to have you back. Hi, how are you doing, Pete? Chris has spent many years reporting, covering news events, working with BBC, WGBH, and brings his, brings his wisdom and expertise on all matters political as well to the fore. Unfortunately, Dr. Natalie Alinos won't be joining us this morning, and we will weep openly and render our garments on her behalf. So, Dr. Nat, we miss you. Anyway. Render uh, our comments. Rendering. You, yeah, that's right. I have yeah. To hand over my shirt because she's not here today. Well, you know, it's I'm trying to bring some drama. This is radio and I'm trying to, you know, they say make it as visual as you can. <laughs> so that, <laughs> score another face plant for me. Anyway, Bang. <laughs> I. Uh, would like to put on the table a discussion uh, somewhat timely, um, given Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, nomination and acceptance into the court. Um, just looking at the larger issues of the court, when have they gotten it wrong is a great question. They're not infallible, but certainly the Supreme Court is held in high regard as being about the closest thing you can get to infallibility. Uh, with respect to the Constitution and the law. And and so with that, I'd like to explore perhaps where they may have gotten things wrong in the past and the reasons why and where we might be going in the future. So that said, I open the floor. Okay. Well, look, at, I would love to um, dive right in and talk about uh, a case from 1927. And the case is called Buck versus Bell. And in that particular case, uh, and I'm going to share with, with uh, the description that one author who wrote about this case and the issues surrounding it, what he wrote, he said, uh, in 1927, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling so disturbing, ignorant, and cruel that it stands as one of the great injustices in American history. And uh, what makes this case so disturbing. Um, it was uh, a story about a legal case that uh, um, was around the topic of eugenics. 
And uh, the book that I'm talking about, uh, the title of the book is Imbeciles, the Supreme Court, American Eugenics, and the Sterilization of Carrie Buck. And uh, back in uh, the 1920s, uh, those who uh, were thought to be feeble-minded and undesirable citizens uh, were given two choices. Uh, one, you could uh, get sterilized so that you would not produce offspring that uh, would be equally feeble-minded, or you could go live in a community where you would stay there until your child-rearing ages um, had passed, and uh, so that would prevent you from reproducing. And what's striking to me about this case is that uh, the author of the opinion upholding this practice was none other than Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was, is known as one of the, the greatest jurists in the history of uh, the Supreme Court. And it was an eight to one ruling that included uh, not only Oliver Wendell Holmes, but uh, Chief Justice uh, William Howard Taft, who actually uh, served as a president of the United States, mm -hmm. and uh, Louis Brandeis, who was a, a progressive icon. They signed on to this opinion and uh, the most shocking language that this case is, is known for is uh, the notion or, or the language. Right from the case, it said that three generations of imbeciles is enough. And, uh, you know, was, uh, eugenics was a, a growing movement and trying to um, really orchestrate what type of people we were going to allow to exist. Uh, in the world. And uh, I, I dare say that uh, during the Nuremberg trials, uh, they asked uh, some of the Nazis where they got this idea uh, for the Holocaust, and they point to uh, the eugenics movement in the United States. Well, thankfully, the eugenics movement died a swift death. But uh, that I, I can remember studying that case when I was in law school back in the 1980s. Uh, disturbed me then. And uh, when I read this book, um, Imbeciles, actually, um, we had a, um, a group book uh, talk at the Social Law Library in Boston, where we had a panel of, of judges and lawyers sitting around a table with the author of the book talking about uh, this particular case. It, the book is out in uh, 2016. But just a fascinating look at how some of the most talented and intelligent people can get something so horribly wrong. And that was in, in 1927. I'd love especially, to hear. Especially yeah. eight to one, eight to, uh, you know, if it was a five, four vote, I, I might've said, well, all right, you know, somebody's confused or whatever, but, but eight to one, it just heightens the drama all the more, you know, with only one dissenter. Yes, Chris here, the, uh, I'll put my history buff hat on and I, I agree with Jeff that, or I think it illustrates your point, Pete, that case illustrates how the court does, in fact, reflect society more broadly and its you know, level of mores, as it were, mm. morals, uh, because uh, there was this horrible phenomenon called social Darwinism that was sweeping through the Western world about 100 years ago, where people thought they could accelerate evolution, as it were, by doing the monstrous things against people with who are differently abled and uh, people of different color as well and you know that's a, a enforced racism 
my god time and uh, so you know that's in a sense a symptom of it and we forget how broadly that was accepted by much of educated society across the western world and um, thankfully i think uh, the world has moved on and uh, the court uh, and our op opinions of the court's decisions have moved on as well I'm a little bit surprised also that, you know, my exposure to the court has always been that, you know, the court tends to review cases predicated on constitutionality, which is what they are about. And they leave it to the lower courts to handle most of these matters, come up with decisions that they then may review against the Constitution. But, you know, that said, it, I'm really curious about the journey of such laws. And it sounds, you know, again, at the surface, not having read the book, at the surface, it almost sounds as though the Supreme Court was acting more like one of the lower courts in its finding. Uh, and then, too, I raise a question of the right to privacy under the Bill of Rights. It seems to me to be a Fourth Amendment violation by all the things that we know today. That's my first takeaway. Well, when you look at the arguments, especially around the right to privacy, uh, number one, there are those who believe that there is no right to privacy because the uh, because the Constitution doesn't explicitly say that we have a right to privacy. And as a result, those who are purists who say, well, if the words aren't there, you cannot acquire it, lend themselves to the uh, basic premise that unless we can establish that the founders wanted this in their by what they put in the constitution in their words mm -hmm. we have to take the constitution at face value which i think undermines uh at least in my mind part of the rational basis upon which the founders tried to uh establish the constitution but we also always have to acknowledge that the Constitution is a political document. It is not a document of what I would say, uh, again, when we talk about infallibility, it is not a document of holy word or scripture. It is a political document. It was a document forged through compromise, forged through some really poor, bad, horrific decisions. And yet we have those who believe that the Constitution should not be evolved with the people. Uh, and if you just Google some of the worst decisions of the Supreme Court, you will come up with not only the one on eugenics, but you'll also come up with the one where the Supreme Court agreed that the United States could put the Japanese in World War II in concentration camps. Hmm. You will find that the Supreme Court agreed that Africans who were brought here as slaves uh, were not U.S. citizens, even if their progeny had been born here. Mm. You will find that the Supreme Court agreed that slavery was OK. As a matter of fact, the the political as well as legal framework for slavery has been well documented over the years, up to and including the civil rights laws. And it is amazing to me also with my historian hat on, 
it is amazing to me that we fall track to many of the labels and many of the vitriolic uh, discussions that are going on that we, for example, we shouldn't expand the Supreme Court. I think that's misguided that the Supreme Court uh, is not a political body. It is. And the media, we keep perpetuating that, as a matter of fact, by all the time referencing who who appointed a particular justice. Uh, and right now, for example, uh, uh, Judge Brown, soon to become Justice Brown, will forever be labeled as Biden's pick. And I think, again, these are things that we as citizens, and especially those of us here in Franklin, based upon our, uh, our namesake, have to be cautious about how we as citizens not only view the, the Supreme Court, but view this entire experiment that's going on here. So, uh, Jeff, I think you, you, you know, you've pointed out a really, I think, important case that uh, has been obscured by time, but still has to be kept in front of us. Uh, right now, we're going to be hearing a lot about Plessy versus Ferguson because we're going to be hearing about how when the Supreme Court gets it wrong, it is their obligation to correct it, even though their correction, quote unquote, may not necessarily be correct. Uh, no, um, you, you bring up a great point. And I want to share with you, uh, first of all, that the Buck versus Bell decision has never been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, it came close in, in the 40s when uh, they, um, the Supreme Court uh, outlawed the sterilization of criminals. Uh, but Buck versus Bell, for all intents and purposes, still stands as good law. And I, I want to read to you uh, something from that decision mm -hmm. that uh, talks about how it has application today, because uh, we, you know, in the in the public welfare and vaccination discussions uh, that actually came up in this case. And this is one this is from some of the language of the case. Uh, from uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. We have seen more than once that the public wel welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. I cannot believe that I'm reading that from a Supreme Court decision, that that is from the high court of our land. Um, it's and that it's still good law and that it's still good law. It's 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 disgusting uh, to sit here and uh, and read that. And, uh, you know, it's not the only time the courts got it wrong. But boy, did they do a disastrous job with mm -hmm. that one. And these are intelligent people. It's it's a, the I'm not a legal expert, but they want uh, not a lawyer like you, Jeff. But the uh, one of the fundamental principles that I absorbed at college was that uh, to be a judge when you're considering the law 
one of the considerations has to be, is it just? Is it fair? Is it equitable? And there doesn't seem to be any of that in, in that at all, in, what, in that passage you read from the, from the decision. Well, if you listen to the, uh, the hearings for Judge Brown, it appears that whether it's just or whether it's reasonable, there are those in our society who really don't care whether it's just or reasonable. There are those who believe that you follow what the law says, quote unquote, of mm -hmm. some of our senators who mm -hmm. believe that a judge does not decide whether a defendant is uh, truly deserving of the punishment that's written on the law. You have no latitude is what they're telling us that they want a judge to be able to sit there and basically dispense out whatever it is that the legislative body has decreed. And therefore, the judge has no discretion when it comes to justice. And I agree with you, Chris. I think that that gets to us to a point of unreasonableness. I want a judge to be able to sit there, uh, similar to the model that we take out of biblical times, out of, you know, you know, with Solomon, and make some wise decisions, if you will. And yes, some of those may not necessarily always be on point with the law, but let's hope that they are just in their decision making. Let me let me throw in one more uh, piece to the mix, because Chris. You bring up a point, you say, you know, um, you had an understanding of the law uh, to do justice. And that same judge that I talked about, and I, I know this because I wrote my college essay on this particular story. Uh, and that was a long time ago. But uh, <laughs> Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, was riding, uh, they, they uh, were walking together. This is the story that's told. Uh, with Judge Learned Hand. And yes, that's his actually his name, Learned mm -hmm. Hand. And they, um, as they were headed off, leaving their lunch together, uh, Judge Hand, you know, ran after um, Judge Holmes, Justice Holmes, who was on his way to the courthouse. And, and he yelled at him, he said, do justice, sir, do justice. And uh, Holmes instructed uh, his carriage driver to stop the carriage. And he turned back and he and he looked at Judge Hand and he said, that's not my job. It is my job to apply the law. Wow. I found that so incredible. And, and I got that story uh, from a book called Why Justice Fails. And uh, I was writing my college essay on the notion and concept of justice. And, and that particular story st uh, stuck with me then. Uh, it sticks with me to this day, and I just thought of it, uh, Chris, as you made that comment. I love the notion. I think that's why I became a lawyer. Uh, that's why I uh, do the work that I do at the State House because I believe one of our objects is to provide justice for people, and uh, that struck me. And it's no to me, it's no surprise that the same guy who uttered the words three generations of imbeciles is not enough would other that it wasn't his job as a judge to do justice. Incredible. Hmm. I want to, I want to correct something too. Uh, actually not correct it, but I want to clarify something uh, that we were discussing earlier uh, for our listeners and those who are listening to the podcast. 
when we talk about something is still good law, we don't mean good in the sense that it is good. Uh, that's a term of art in legal sense, which means that it's still valid. Okay, mm. so good law is not necessarily good. All it means is that it's still operable. It's still uh, 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 attorneys can yep. use it. It's on the books, yes, and it has not been overturned. Okay. There are many of what we know today as sort of frivolous laws that go back perhaps to, you know, the early forming of the country uh, in Maryland, for instance, there was a law that you couldn't eat and walk publicly at the same time. Those sorts of things, you know, they're head scratchers and you wonder where they came from, but they tend to be, you know, sort of interesting and entertaining background noise. But when it rises to the level that we're talking about this morning, it has a very serious effect, obviously, on society. And uh, I mentioned earlier the right to privacy. And Dr. Mike, you brought up something interesting in the fact that it isn't really in the Constitution. Uh, and if you really do a, a clear reading of the Fourth Amendment, you're absolutely right. The Fourth Amendment talks about unreasonable search and seizure, and it was adopted in response to what was known back in British law as a writ of assistance. And so in my perfect world, on my journey toward a more perfect union, what would I do? If I, you know, call it, let's call it, if I were the emperor, what would I do? Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, and it's good to speculate about those things. And I'm, I'm a believer that we are all helped greatly as members of society by finding ways to modernize the Fourth Amendment. And because people abridge its discussion as being a right to privacy. And as written, that's true. Um, but the legal definition of a right to privacy under under 4A uh, is something that I think could be expanded uh, and in a couple of ways. Number one, I think that the right to privacy also applies across the citizenry. That is, I would like to see the Fourth Amendment applied as a balance against the First Amendment, which I strongly believe in. But I think that the First Amendment can run amok, particularly in times of protest and when people are put in danger in harm's way, um, when things get too violent. Um, and I would I would advocate that people have a right to privacy and to a private space. In other words, wherever you may stand, you are assumed to have some, let's call it cylinder of privacy against other citizens as well as the government, and nobody can violate your personal space. And that requires obviously a definition of what that is. And I think that tends to be a mediating factor between protest and the right of personal movement. Certainly it applies in cases of abortions. You wanna enter an abortion clinic and you are accosted. Well, to what extent can you legally be accosted? Also too, I wanna to touch on the Fourth Amendment as something that when you're talking about the right to privacy, there is nothing in the law currently in the United States that protects journalists and their sources. And while there is a, we'll call it a tacit understanding, uh, Congress hasn't actually passed explicit language. So while it's implicit, I'd prefer it be explicit. In other countries, it is explicitly so written that reporters have their rights to professional privacy and to maintain the privacy of their sources. So them's my two cents on it. What say ye? <laughs> Let well, me jump in on the right to privacy. 
while it's not explicitly mentioned in the Bill of Rights, uh, there is a case uh, from 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut, which established a right to privacy. And uh, this is my favorite uh, Supreme Court justice. I am a William O. Douglas fan, mm. and uh, I have a great collection of his writings. I have every single book he's ever written. He was probably the most prolific writer of all. Elegant as well. Elegant, just, as well. Yeah, elegant and uh, longest serving mm. uh, justice in the history of the Supreme Court. And will, it will be something very difficult to uh, beat. But uh, in his writing in the Griswold case, um, he said that a general right to privacy is found in the penumbras or zones created by uh, the guarantees of several amendments in the Bill of Rights, including the first, third, fourth, and ninth amendments. And uh, you know that case is off, often looked back upon, uh, you know, as as the basis for that right to privacy. And uh, it actually dealt with. Uh, the state of Connecticut, uh, the law on the distribution of contraceptives. And um, my favorite line from that case, and it looks like I'm reading a lot of Supreme Court cases today, but uh, I actually uh, performed a wedding a few years ago, uh, and I used this line as part of the, um, as part of the uh, ceremony. And uh, it's, we deal with a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths, a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects, yet is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. I loved the way that language flowed. It was curious to me that William O. Douglas was married four times, yet uh, he found the institution to be uh, so uh, uh, so um, amazing. Uh, maybe he liked it so much. That's probably why he got married four times. But he kept uh, at it you know, until he got it right. <laughs> he, yes, uh, but uh, it, it's incredible how it took until 1965 to establish that basic right to privacy uh, in our law, because mm. as Michael pointed out, there was nothing directly saying this in the in the Constitution. That's that a case where the Supreme Court got it right, by the way. That's, that's also yeah, and a point. I think that's an important point to make is that, uh, yes, we've highlighted some of the terrible decisions. Uh, we haven't even mentioned Dred Scott Mm -hmm. um, from the 19th century, but uh, on many occasions and for many, you know, good higher purposes, the Supreme Court has helped the country progress in a in a good direction. So, I think that's not that's worth listeners remembering that it's not all bad. True, true, and I think our premise today is in understanding where they may have gone off the rails. It gives us some insight as to what might be the remedies to improve the batting average, which you know, quite frankly, as you point out, is quite high but it's not perfect. Yeah, I quickly checked the Third Amendment, and it was clearly interesting. It was about, uh, you know, in a time of peace, no soldiers may be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. Fascinating uh, language right there in that one sentence. Yeah, and I think, too, when you refer back to the 
discussions and debates that were going on around uh, the amendments, this idea that a man's home was his castle mm-hmm. permeated the language uh, of those discussions. And unfortunately, albeit they did not explicitly put in the words privacy, I think everything that surrounds the Fourth Amendment and uh, the the right to a trial, the right to have representation, uh, <clears throat> the right to your speech, that you own it, which gives us then the, I think, not just the whole idea, but uh, I think it is there that says the framers wanted in this experiment for people to have a a circle around them that the state could not breach mm. without due process, without cause. And those things they did put into uh, the document. Uh, but then again, uh, in response, Chris, to well, there are times when they get it right. I, you know, there's no question about that. But the thing that we should not do is to believe, and Learned Hand uh, and Douglas are two of my favorites. We should not believe that these human beings, up till recently, all men, up till recently, all white men were infallible. They were not. We should not believe that up to now that these people were not political. They were. They saw what was going on. To this day, they still see what's going on. And now we're beginning to discover because of the the expansive 24-hour-a-day news cycle, we're beginning to discover that not only are these folks on the Supreme Court real people, but they have real fallibilities. Uh, and we are also beginning to discover that because we had this aura around them, we have not set up any guardrails to protect ourselves from a court at almost uh, at that level run amok. We have ethics, for example, requirements at in most states and at the lower level uh, for every judiciary organization up to but excluding the Supreme Court. And we're beginning to discover that that is a problem. We're also beginning to discover, too, that even though the public eye may be on the Supreme Court justice, we're discovering that, well, what about their family members? What about the things that are influencing them in their own homes that they may be bringing to the bench? And so it's important, I think, for us to have these kinds of discussions. And I think, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm so sorry that we don't have someone who is of an opposing view uh, here with us today, because I'd love to hear, you know, what are some of the defenses of the politicalization of the court or people so, who don't believe that they're political? So, Dr. Mike, I'll play devil's advocate then. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about um, uh, Justice Thomas and his uh, wife, uh, Ginny, who has been, various people are saying uh, various things about her um, taking, shall we say, an active political stand in, um, in a certain area. The allegations are that she was meddling with 
trying to promote the insurrection on January 6th, 2020 mm. to overturn the uh, 2021 to overturn the election of 2020. And we don't know uh, for sure what was her role was, but um, trying to overthrow uh, the election, the, the foundation of the constitution in many ways would seem to be controversial. <laughs> so, but why, why can she not have her own political opinions? Well, she can have her political opinion, but according to the law and according to what we do know with regard to her emails to then uh, Chief of Staff Meadows, she was advocating for not just insurrection, but for the existing government at the time, the Trump administration, to take a proactive role to stop the transfer of power. Now, mm. that we know from her emails. And so the question becomes, given that she is the wife of a Supreme Court justice, uh, and I do not fault her for having an opinion. I do fault her for being one who is advocating for the overthrow of the government, okay? at least so far as we can see from her emails. Uh, but again, that's not something that we proved that her intent was to overthrow the government. Just, just her emails suggested that. But the question becomes, should Clarence Thomas mm. have, when a case comes up in front of him, regarding the documents, her emails, being given to the oversight committee, in Congress, he did not recuse himself. And the question now becomes, did he or was he aware that his wife had these particular points of view and had been active with the emails? And therefore, should he have taken himself out of that case? We use the word recuse. No, I'm not going to make a decision in this particular case because or I'm not even going to listen to it because uh, the outcome of the case may be, well, will, would be, uh, give the appearance of prejudice on my part because my wife happens to be one of those, uh, have, have provided one of those documents that would be released to the committee. And I don't want that to happen. And I don't want that to appear to be something as a conflict of interest on my part. But he didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he was the sole justice. And this is the reverse of what we were talking about earlier. Now we have eight justices who say, oh, you have to turn over those documents. And one who says, no, we we should not allow those documents to be turned over. So what's is there a legal concept for where uh, a statement just is so absurdly defiant of common sense that, for example, that he couldn't have known about her opinions? Um, you know, is there a, is that a admissible legal concept? Well, yes, it is in the sense that the recusal in this case uh, is one where if he had knowledge, if he says, I didn't have knowledge that she was advocating these things, uh, actually, for him as a justice, since there's no uh, there are no tenets, there are no documents, there are nothing that guide the Supreme Court with regard to ethics. He could just make that statement and say, well, I didn't know, and everything would be okay. As a matter of fact, the Supreme Court makes up their own ethical rules. Each justice gets to decide, uh, sometimes in consultation with the chief justice, what I will listen to and what I won't. Yeah, obviously, at the surface, I think a lot of people 
who you know have varying degrees of familiarity with this thing tend to fall on the side of recusal pretty quickly. And along with justice, if prudence so dictates, that would seem to be the great clarifier if he were to step away from such decisions and to do so publicly such that his position on the court could not be impugned. That would that I think would would satisfy most people's determination with respect to the matter. But and, and yeah, there he and his wife really constitute two separately moving parts. She she is a political animal as is he, and and they have their personal beliefs, whatever they may be. Some shared, perhaps some quite disparate. But at the end of the day when it comes to making a decision on the bench where his wife has such involvement, I think that he would want to step away. But again, that's, that's just me. But he Uh, doesn't have to. Correct. He doesn't have to. I know. And, and therein lies, I think what, uh, what I hope our listeners are hearing out of this discussion, you know, is that when we reach the Supreme court, we are looking at an entity up to, I think, present day that has been revered and sort of put into this box of they make good decisions based upon reason, Mm -hmm. based upon rational thought, based upon the law, based upon a discussion and interpretation. Deliberation and consensus. And learned people. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what our image is of the Supreme Court. And we're beginning to find out that the Supreme Court, uh, we, we could have a whole show on the hidden docket, for example. And we could also discuss, too, the lack of certain perspectives that are on the court, which now brings me to Judge Brown, who will soon be Justice Brown. I believe that she will bring to the court a perspective that has not been there before. Mm. Not just from the standpoint of her legal prowess, but also as a black woman and her background, I think, dictates that there will be a change, at least with the addition of her perspective. Now, the question becomes, will she be able to influence any of those who have differing or uh, or opposing viewpoints that is yet to be seen, but I want to echo what, uh, our good friend from New Jersey, uh, Senator Booker said, I'm not going to let anybody steal my joy mm. of seeing the first black woman on the Supreme court and understanding in the 200 plus years that this experiment has been going on. This I think is a high point for us as a country, as a nation, and as a people. Uh, so I look forward to her getting on the court. I wanted to applaud uh, not only her success, but also applaud, applaud this moment. I also so I want to share in that joy. And well, mm-hmm. if you will spread a little bit around. I mean, it's a, it's a, an incredible moment for the country, for so many uh, groups of people. And I was just so inspired by listening uh, to her testimony and her demeanor and how she addressed some of the most ridiculous questions I have ever seen asked in in a a hearing of this nature. Um, I think think they found a a new low bar. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I I remember tweeting last week, I was was puzzled at how Harvard University could produce somebody so poised and well-spoken 
as uh, future Justice Brown and Ted Cruz, that they could both come out of the same institution. But I'll leave it at that. Um, I do want to jump to another another case uh, dealing with politicization of the Supreme Court. And um, it's known uh, as the case as the switch in time that saved nine. And it's from 1937. So, you know, FDR is the president. He's got a lot of New Deal matters that uh, are regulating business. And, uh, you know, through the uh, first few terms of his presidency, the Supreme Court was invalidating many of the New Deal measures by five to four votes. And you may recall that at at one point, uh, um, President Roosevelt had proposed expanding the court, adding more members, because Mm. uh, that was his particular solution to uh, the invalidation of his New Deal uh, pieces. And I I think uh, that conversation has resurfaced with uh, uh, the election of Joe Biden. But uh, there was a justice, his name was Owen Roberts, and uh, the case is uh, West Coast Hotel versus Parish, and it was a case involving the whether or not the Washington minimum wage law should be upheld. And, you know, a few months before this decision, FDR had announced his court packing plan. And uh, lo and behold, uh, Justice Roberts, who was voting with the five uh, justices to invalidate all these cases, uh, switched his vote and decided to uphold uh, Washington's minimum wage law. And lo and behold, we had, for the first time, the Supreme Court upholding a piece of the New Deal legislation. And uh, it's known as the switch in time that saved nine. And the court packing mm-hmm. plan fell apart. Uh, and it just goes right to your point, Michael, that, uh, yeah, these are, these are political players and uh, they're watching what's going on around them. I certainly hope that uh, Justice Brown, my God, um, Justice Jackson, I apologize. I hope that she has the ability to uh, make some other switches uh, from the conservative folks. I hope that uh, they will use their God-given uh, ears and mouth in proportion and uh, be good listeners and uh, see if we can get some uh, some good decisions out of this court. But uh, I, I often think of that one, and that's a, that's a pretty good example of uh, politicization of the court. So you think the the fear of the institution being reformed or, or augmented uh, was what impelled that uh, change of heart? There's certainly a lot of people who uh, are suggesting that's exactly what happened. Wow. Huh. And let me give one more example. And I've used her, her truncated name, Brown, rather than Brown Jackson. In the Exxon case, which I also think, too, was another poorly decided case. And let me read for you from uh, just from a synopsis of that particular case. It's Exxon Shipping versus Baker. uh, And that was uh, from 2008. And what happened was is that Exxon had been fined with $5 billion in damages. And the case went to the Supreme Court where Exxon was challenging the uh, extent of the damage award. And the Supreme Court ruled that Exxon couldn't be subject to punitive damages in excess of compensatory ones. 
So they dropped the total damages from $5 billion to $500 million. Now, not only did Exxon evade billions in damages, uh, but the Supreme Court ruling increased the value of its stock by $23 billion in two days. Now, here is where something that we've been discussing becomes a very crucial point. Justice Alito, who never told anyone, but he knew, did never recused himself from the case, even though he owned Exxon stock and benefited from the decision uh-huh. in the means of, well, sure. hundreds of thousands of dollars personally. So the idea that the Supreme Court is above the above the idea uh, of trying to self-regulate and they have no regulations at all around their own ethics, I think, is an important point for our listeners to keep in mind when there's talk about reforming the court. I, for one, uh, would love to keep going on the topic, but we've come to the end of an hour, and uh, obviously we're going to have to continue this uh, because there's so much more, as Jeff pointed out, that we could cover with respect to the court's Uh, get into the notion of should we expand the court? Should we consider term limits? There are all kinds of things that we could put on the table for further discussion. But until that time, thank you for joining us. For Representative Jeff Roy, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Dr. Natalie Alinos, who couldn't be with us today, and for Chris Wolf, I'm Peter Jay. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.